That's power. All right, so here we go. Someone handed this to me this morning, just a half an hour ago or so, and I thought I'd share it with you. It says that one Easter Sunday, the Reverend Jones stood and announced to his congregation, my good people, I hold here in my hands three possible sermons for this special day. The worshipers leaned forward in their seats. The pastor continued, I have a $1,000 sermon that lasts 25 minutes. I have a $500 sermon that lasts an hour. And I have a $100 sermon that lasts a full hour and a half. He paused for a dramatic effect. <laughs> then said, The ushers will now collect an offering. We'll count up the total and see which sermon I will deliver. Ushers, <laughs> open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, we're going back to Matthew's gospel, back to a good old friend. We've been gone for a long time now. We have been three months absent from Matthew's gospel. And so we are back now into it this morning, and well, that'll be our plan pretty much going forward. I don't know about you, but my memory is not what it once was. And so I think that it's likely that you have forgotten in the last three months at least something of uh, the structure of this gospel. And so what I want to do is just take a little bit of time to begin as we reacquaint ourselves with Matthew's gospel and launching here into the 10th chapter to review the structure of the gospel. Just kind of locate ourselves again in this text and uh, where we're going. The New Testament, as you, I'm sure, know, contains four Gospels, four different Gospels. And these Gospels are written to four different kinds of people. There are believers and unbelievers. That's two kinds. And there are Jews and Gentiles. That's two more. Four Gospels, each one addressed to a unique group of individuals. Now, they are profitable, of course, because they are the word of God and thus profitable for all, but they are, they are uniquely designed by their authors to either establish or strengthen saving faith. Simply enough, Matthew's gospel, it opens the New Testament. Matthew's gospel presents the Lord Jesus Christ as the king, the king of Israel. And Matthew's gospel was written for Jewish believers. That is the target audience, Jewish believers. If we were to look for a verse in Matthew's gospel that sort of summarize this, this gospel and what, what its theme is, we would find it in chapter 21 and verse 5, where it says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. It's an Old Testament quote. And it captures really the essence of Matthew's gospel, Behold Your King. Mark's gospel, next in sequence in the New Testament, 
presents Jesus not as the king, but as a servant, as a servant. And Mark's gospel was written for Gentile unbelievers. I know that we often, when we, when we uh, encounter someone who is not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, we often direct them to John's gospel. But actually, Mark's gospel was written for that purpose, to acquaint a Gentile with the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ. And probably the verse that I think summarizes Mark's gospel is found in chapter 10 and verse 45, where Jesus says there, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Mark's gospel presenting Jesus as the suffering servant written to establish Gentile belief. Third in order in your New Testament is Luke's gospel. That's it. There we go. Matthew, Mark, Luke. That's right. Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel was also written to Gentiles, but it was written to Gentile believers. Gentile believers. And Luke's gospel presents Jesus as the man, the perfect man. It presents his humanity. It most often emphasizes the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is probably best summarized in chapter 19 and verse 10, where Jesus says, For the Son of Man did not, uh, has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Why did he come? To seek and to save that which was lost. And that leads us to the fourth and final gospel. And by combining those four, of course, we get a composite picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's John's gospel. John's gospel written to Jewish unbelievers. So it is written to evangelize Jewish people. And it presents Jesus most clearly as God. It presents the the, uh, deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John says it this way in chapter 20 and verse 31. These have been written, and he's speaking to the seven signs that make up the skeletal outline of John's gospel. These have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So four gospels for four specific purposes presenting a compound picture of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Matthew's gospel is what we are working our way through, and we've been at it for a couple of years, and uh, we probably got some uh, period of time to go before we finish. And it's important to remember that, that Matthew does not uh, write this gospel in a strictly chronological fashion. Matthew, in fact, places certain events next to each other and out of chronological chronological sequence, and he does so because it best communicates the theme of his message. And by the way, that is not a that is not a problem because he nowhere says that I'm giving it to you chronologically, so it's not like he has deceived us in any way. He is giving it to us somewhat thematically, so it's chronological and thematical. And its purpose is the overall theme of Jesus as the king of Israel. And so he arranges his material in such a way to really establish that reality that Jesus is the king of Israel. And the reason he does this is because when his gospel was written, 
the Jewish people had already rejected Jesus. And so it is written, as we said, to, to Jewish believers, and it's designed to help them to understand if he really is the king of, e- of Israel, he really is the Messiah, we believe that to be true, but our Jewish friends and neighbors and family members are saying to us, well, if he's really the king, how come he's not ruling on the throne? What happened? And Matthew presents the reality of that, that it is Jewish unbelief It is Jewish rejection of the Messiah in the face of overwhelming evidence, both biblical and, and if I can say it this way, circumstantial. And yet they continued to refuse him. And thus, he never brought the kingdom, the long-promised kingdom, to bear. But he is coming again. And when he returns... This time, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess, Paul says, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Matthew puts his gospel together. Chapters 1 through 7. We're not going to look at this in, uh, in detail, but chapters 1 through 7 begin with an introduction of the king. You need to introduce your king. Behold your king, O Israel. And so it begins with his lineage, He's from son of Abraham, son of David. And Matthew arranges his genealogy that way. So it presents the lineage of a king. It it presents the moral qualifications of the king in the temptation, how he he withstands uh, Satan's temptations. It presents an exposition of the law in chapters 5 through 7. We know it is the Sermon on the Mount, but it is the king's exposition of the Mosaic law. So it's all introductory in that sense. Chapters 8 through 10, and that's where we find ourselves, are given over to kingdom miracles, particularly chapters 8 and 9, but bleeding into chapter 10. Kingdom miracles, that is miraculous signs that Jesus does, and there there are many of them, there are nine of them there, done to establish his credentials. And yet what we sense as we as Matthew presents it to us is that there is a growing opposition in the face of the overwhelming evidence. And in particular, the opposition is building among the Pharisees, the religious leaders that are out and about in the in the community. So we see growing Pharisaical opposition in the face of the overwhelming credentials of Jesus, the king. That takes us to chapters 11 through 13 where in particular in chapter 12, they outright reject him and commit what is known as the unpardonable sin. And from that point on, the gospel of Matthew takes a a significant turn. We enter into chapter 13 in which we find the parables of the kingdom, the parables of the kingdom. And and Jesus presents teaching that tells us how the kingdom of God will now operate having been rejected by the people. Chapters 14 through 20 are, we call, withdrawal. Withdrawal. Jesus is trying to get away from the crowds by this point. He's looking to get alone, and he wants to be alone with his disciples. And he wants to be alone with his disciples because he wants to teach them and train them and prepare them for what he knows is inevitable, and that is his own crucifixion. And so this whole enterprise, it must now be entrusted into the hands of certain men. And they need discipleship. They need training. They need preparation. And so chapters 14 through 20, that's the basic idea is Jesus is trying to get alone to train them for what is to come. 
Chapters 21 to 27 is Jesus' official presentation of himself in Jerusalem to the nation. They reject him there and call for Barabbas instead. They crucify him, bury him, and he is raised again from the dead by God the Father, thus establishing him as the messianic king over all of creation. Taking us into chapter 28, where we find there a commission to his followers to take this message of the resurrected Messiah to the ends of the earth. Bring it to the Gentiles. Bring it to the Gentiles. So that's Matthew's structure in a nutshell. (coughs) Excuse me. And that takes us contextually to where we are this morning. Chapter 10. Chapter 10. Now, we need to notice contextually here in chapter 10 that it follows chapter 9. That's our first observation, that it follows chapter 9. And, you know, chapter markings are helpful. In fact, I would say they're, they're like almost essential in order to be able to find our way around the Bible. Can you imagine if I said, open your scroll, right, to about that much, how difficult it would be, wouldn't it? So we have chapter titles or or chapter numbers, but knowing they were not part of the original text. The downside of chapter title or chapter numbers, of course, is that we tend to read to the end of a chapter and stop, close our Bible, put it away. And then when we open it up again to read the beginning of the next chapter, we forgot what we read in the prior chapter and we miss some very important linkages that way. So chapter nine and chapter 10 are supposed to be read together. So let's just commit to each other. If, next time you read Matthew chapter 9, that you promise you'll read 10 too, or also. So here we are. We, uh, we pick it up in uh, chapter 10. And we notice, uh, just looking back up, letting our eyes go back up to the end of chapter 9, beginning of verse 36, where it says, Seeing the people, the multitudes, Jesus felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first Simon, who was called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's the same crowd, as it were, that is in 936, seeing the people, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus looks around, sees the multitudes, their leaders, the the Pharisees who were supposed to be caring for their souls, have abandoned them and, and established a system that puts them into bondage and makes them, as Jesus says later, twice as much a son of hell as they themselves are. And he has great compassion on these people. And so he says to his disciples, you need to pray that God would raise up workers. 
And then Jesus appoints workers. He appoints workers. Do you ever think about the um, possibility that you might be the answer to your own prayer? Do you ever consider that? Oh, Lord, send someone to share the gospel with my neighbor. <laughs> Maybe you're the one to answer your own prayer, to be the answer to your own prayer. That's essentially what we see here. Pray, you disciples, that God would raise up someone to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And by the way, it's you, and 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 it's you. You're going. And that's exactly what Jesus does. Now, it's interesting to, to know, Matthew doesn't mention it here, but Luke tells us over in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, that this selection occurs after Jesus has spent all night alone on the mountain praying. So he has been alone with the Father, praying all night long. He comes down from his time of fellowship and prayer with the Lord, and, and we could only speculate, of course, on what might occupy him, but, but certainly from the text here that it's what is occupying his mind is the need to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he comes down, and he, after wrestling with God, he selects these 12 men. These 12 men. Now, where did he get them? Like, you know, where do they come from? Well, he drew them from the crowds who were following him. These were men chosen from the larger group of followers. Those that had, I think, shown particular interest, had been with him for extended periods of time. And it was from this, this group, this larger group, that he drew out these 12 men. And he gives them a commission. And we'll begin to look at that uh, in a couple of weeks, the commission that he gives to them to, to go and to, and to preach a message to the nation of Israel on his behalf. Now, the New Testament provides four lists of the 12 disciples. They're called the 12 and there are actually four lists in the New Testament of these particular men. There's a list here in Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 through 4. There's another list in Mark's gospel, chapter 3, verses 16 to 19. There is a third list in Luke's gospel, chapter 6, verses 13 through 16. And then there is a final list in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. Now, it's interesting to note the, the similarities and the differences between the lists, and somewhat instructive, I think. Certain similarities, certain differences. For example, similarities. Peter heads up all four lists. Peter's name always appears first in every one of the four lists. We'll come back to that. Judas Iscariot's name appears last in three of the four lists. He does not appear in the list in Acts chapter 3, and that's because he's dead. He had committed suicide prior to that list. The other thing that's interesting to note is that, that Judas Iscariot appearing in Matthew, Mark, and Luke 
always has a little attachment to his name, a statement about him being a traitor. He is always called the traitor. He appears last. He is the traitor. The lists are grouped, and none of this stuff's original with me. This, these things have been observed by God's people for two millennia, but they are grouped into fours, three groupings of four. So the 12 names are grouped into three groupings of four. And the names within the groupings of four do not change. That is that if you're in the first group of four, you're always in the first group of four. If you're in the second group of four, you're always in the second group of four. If you're in the third group of four, you're always in the third group of four. You don't move around between groups. Names do move around inside the group, but the group itself does not move. And that they uh, most believe that there is a group leader, a group leader, and, and those names do not change in order. So let me show it to you here, verses 2 and 3. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, that is the first name in the first grouping of four, and he is always in that position in all of the listings. Verse 3, Philip... Is the, is the first name in the second grouping of four. He always remains in that position. His name never moves. The third grouping of four, the end of verse three, James, the son of Alphaeus, he remains in his position as well. So most people believe that they were organized into groupings of four, three groups of four with a leader of each of the three groups and Peter himself, the overall leader of the twelve. The first group, Peter's group, contains two sets of brothers. Two sets of brothers. There is Peter and Andrew, his brother, and there is James and John, his brother. So two sets of brothers in the first group. Furthermore, all of the members come from Galilee. They are all residents of Galilee, born in Galilee, grew up in Galilee, and in and around the, the Sea of Galilee, many fishermen. The only exception to that is Judas, the traitor. Judas does not come from Galilee. He is an outsider. He comes from Judea in the south. So 11 from the north, one from the south. Just observations. The Apostle Paul tells us that with the exception of Judas, that these men, these 11 men, were foundational to the establishment and development of the church. Now, that is a very, very interesting statement. We find in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. I think we have it for you there on those screens. You can turn if you want to. But Paul writes there to the church at Ephesus. He says, so then, writing to the church, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. And then here it is, verse 20, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, the foundation of the apostles. The apostles he's talking about are these men here. And he would include himself in that, but that's for another day. So it's these 11 men are foundational to the establishment of the church. All right, question for you. Think with me on this. If you were going to select 12 men to turn the world upside down, you want 12 men and you want to, you want to turn the world upside down through these men, who would you choose? 
And what characteristics would you look for in establishing your inner core, your core team? We talk a lot about church planting here. We are committed to church planting. We did a church plant a couple of years ago out in Fontana. We sent out a team, a core team. And the church planter, Jeremy Bryan, had significant input and say into who was part of that team. He chose the team to go with him. So if you were to choose a team, you're going to go to plant a church. Just put yourself in that position for a moment. You're out to plant a church and you need a core team and you're going to have 12 men to be part of it. Who would you choose? What would you look for? What kind of people would you choose? What kind of gifts would they have? What kind of education would they have? What kind of experiences would they have? What would you look for? Well, Let's take a look this morning and next. That's all introduction, by the way, this morning and next, because we can't get it done in one. I want to introduce the original 12, the core team, the church planting core team. I want to look at the original 12 apostles with you. And and in the process, I think there are three amazing characteristics that stand out. Three amazing characteristics that stand out in these men. And we want to see this so that we recognize, and here it is, the big idea, that the work of God, check this out, the work of God does not depend upon human strength or ability. Let me say that again. The work of God does not depend upon human strength or ability. And nothing will make that more clear than an examination of the lives of these, I don't have enough fingers, 12 men. 12 men. As we take a look. So, you ready? I'm watching my clock here. What did you guys pay for anyway? I think it was, uh, I think it was the short one. Let's take a peek. It begins with Peter. It begins with Peter. Now, these are the names of the 12 apostles. The first, Simon, who is called Peter. The first, protos is the Greek word. It it just means the foremost. The foremost. The, The first among equals. The first among equals. The leader of the band. Peter. Peter is an interesting man. Peter can be characterized as impulsive and devoted. Impulsive and devoted. Peter is a man of great passions. And Peter evidently must have been a very strong and natural leader for his leadership is recognized by all. They follow Peter for good or bad. In his own strength, Peter could could single-handedly attack a Roman cohort with a short sword, right? When they come to arrest Jesus, I told you, he's impulsive. He's a man of passion. He's going to mow down the entire Roman cohort himself. And yet, just a matter of a couple of hours later, Peter wilts in the presence of a slave girl who says to him, You're Galilean. I can tell from your accent. I've seen you there. And he says, no way, right? He denies his Lord. 
So here's a guy who wants to attack Caesar with a sword, and at the same time, in the face of a slave girl, he'll wilt. He's an interesting man, a very complex man, an impulsive man. He is, by appointment of Jesus, the leader of the twelve and the leader of the early church. You get into the book of Acts, and the, and the beginning half of the book of Acts, or third of the book of Acts, is about Peter and his ministry. It is only later, in uh, basically Acts 13 and beyond, when Paul is introduced, and the rest of the book is about Paul. But it, it begins by establishing Peter. He is the leader of the church. Now, interestingly, at least I think it's interestingly, after Acts chapter 15 which is a section of the book of Acts devoted to the, to the Jerusalem council, right? When they came together, you remember that, to, to discern the issue of whether Gentiles needed to be circumcised in order to be full members of the church. After Peter appears there in Acts 15, he pretty much disappears off the pages of Scripture. He, he, he drops out of the narrative. And his, his, his movements, his whereabouts, are actually very difficult to trace. Very difficult to trace. He, he shows up, of course, in, in some of the, you know, a couple of letters that he writes and so forth. But, but where he goes and what he does and what ministries he's involved in, we really don't know. He kind of goes radio silent. Tradition locates him in Rome at the end of his life. The tradition, and it's, I think it's a good tradition, I think it's a solid tradition, says that he was crucified in Rome under Nero sometime around A.D. 68, a couple of years before the destruction of Jerusalem. He is crucified upside down. Sources tell us that it followed the crucifixion of his own wife, which he was forced to watch. After encouraging her to, to stand strong in the faith, he himself was then crucified. He insisted they do it upside down because he said he was not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as excuse me, as his Lord. So they crucified him upside down. Peter wrote two of your New Testament letters, first and second Peter, they bear his name. Many also think that he was uh, very influential in, um, in Mark's ministry and the writing of Mark's gospel. The writing of Mark's gospel. Simon Peter. Next on our list, Andrew, his brother. Right? The first, the protos, the first among equals, Simon, who was called Peter. Next, Andrew, his brother. Andrew, his brother. Peter and Andrew were fishermen. We can see it over in, I'll go ahead and turn you there. It's worth it, I think. To uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 and following. Matthew four eighteen. Now, as Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, in a boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and Followed him. So we have Andrew and we have Peter, fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. They were both followers first of John the Baptist. So Peter and Andrew were, were men of, of 
religious devotion who were looking for Messiah. And so when John the Baptist came preaching, they began to follow John the Baptist. They became disciples of John the Baptist. We see that over in John chapter 1, verse 44. I won't turn you there, but you can look it on your own. They are followers first, disciples first of John the Baptist, and it is John the Baptist who turns them and points them to Jesus. They leave John and begin to follow Jesus. Andrew is the one who actually brings Peter, or Simon as he's called, to Jesus. So it's Andrew who finds Jesus first. He introduces his brother, Peter, to Jesus. And when he introduces him, Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter. The word Peter means rock. Rock. So it's Jesus who first calls him the rock. Andrew, according to tradition was crucified in eastern Turkey, what we now call eastern Turkey, and he was crucified on a cross shaped like an X. Okay, the end's driven into the ground. It's now called St. Andrew's Cross. You see it in many different configurations, but that's the origin of what's called St. Andrew's Cross. So he also dies by crucifixion. That takes us to the third on the list, Master's men here. James. James, the son of Zebedee. He and his younger brother, John, had an interesting temperament, apparently. They are called, the nickname for them is sons of what? Thunder. Now, that's not a compliment. Okay, that's not a compliment. Sons of thunder. In fact, Jesus says, you don't know what spirit you are of, right? When they want to call down fire and destruction upon the Samaritans. So we can, can sense, uh, uh, discern, I guess, about James and John. And it's interesting because John is known as the apostle of what? Love. And yet his nickname is Thunder. Thunder. You can see the work of the Spirit, I think, in the man's life, right? You can go from known as Son of Thunder to the Apostle of Love. But they are nicknamed this, the Sons of Thunder. James himself, we don't really know all that much about, other than the Bible tells us this in Acts chapter 12, verse 22, that he was beheaded. And he was beheaded under orders of Herod Agrippa, that is the grandson of Herod the Great, He was beheaded in about A.D. 44. A.D. 44. You can read it in Acts chapter 12. So this one of the master's men doesn't last very long at all. Right? About a decade after Jesus and his head's gone. That's James. John, his brother, lives on. He lives on. In fact, he he is the longest living of the twelve. John, the longest living of the twelve. Probably the youngest of the twelve as well. He and his brother James were sons of a man named Zebedee. We read that over in Matthew 4. And they had a very successful fishing business on the Sea of Galilee. They were very successful fishermen. John was evidently a very good friend of Peter's. John and Peter were apparently quite good friends. And you can see this. Uh, in, a, in a few ways, in a few places. I'll take you to a couple. Just uh, Luke. I guess we'll probably end here with John. But Luke chapter 22. 
Luke 22. And verse 8. This is when uh, Jesus is uh, sending his disciples to prepare the Passover for him, right? His last Passover. Notice who he sends. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us so that we may eat it. So he sends Peter and he sends John. If you go over to uh, John's gospel, chapter 18 and verse 15. This is after the arrest of Jesus. Two disciples follow the arresting crowd back to the, to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. Verse 15, Simon Peter was following Jesus and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Most believe, and I think appropriately so, that this other unnamed disciple is actually John himself, the writer of the gospel. And it's interesting because John is known to the family of the high priest. Exactly how that happened, we don't know. But we do know that high priests come from, a, from the aristocracy, from the, from the elite of Israel. And somehow Zebedee, his father, knew this, this uh, highfalutin guy. And so whether it was because Zebedee himself was a very wealthy man and thus moved in those circles, or I don't know, maybe they just sold fish to the family of the high priest. But somehow they're known such that the, the maidservant will open the door, let John in, and then John can go back and say, hey, by the way, let my friend Peter in. We can see it also in chapter 20, just the relationship here. And this is when the news comes to them from Mary Magdalene that the tomb is empty on Easter morning. So verse 2, she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb and they get into a foot race and John's younger than Peter and he beats him there. Okay? So there it is, Easter morning, and yet John and Peter are together. They're together. We always see them together. I'll show you one more over in Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. So you will you look for Peter, you'll find John. Peter and John were apparently thick as thieves. They were, they were close friends, close friends. Now, after the fall of Jerusalem, which occurred in AD 70, Peter, or excuse me, John, traveled west to Turkey and took up residence in the city of Ephesus. And he continued to minister out of the city of Ephesus well into his old age. He was actually banished once to the Isle of Patmos. There on the Isle of Patmos, under banishment, he received the, the revelation of Jesus Christ that's recorded for us in the book called the revelation of Jesus Christ. And um, John himself, of course, wrote a gospel. He wrote three letters that we have here in the New Testament. All of these writings occurring very late in life for him. Most of them occurring somewhere around A.D. 95. 
95. So right at the end of the first century, John is the last living apostle. He writes the final book of the New Testament and he closes, and I'll just go ahead and show you this for free, but he closes chapter 22 with a very important statement. Beginning in verse 18, last living apostle, last book, last chapter, virtually the last verse. And he writes, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. What does it mean? It means is that John, last living apostle, writing the last book of the New Testament in the last chapter of the last book of the New Testament in virtually the last verses of the last chapter of the last book of the New Testament written by the last living apostle says prophecy is done. Prophecy is done. Okay? You have everything you need. And so this man declares the book closed. The book is closed. John did not die a violent death. He died of old age. He died of old age. He is one of the few of the 12 to die in that fashion. What do we do with all this? We come back next week and finish the list is what we do. And then take a good look at how Jesus uses these very ordinary men. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you for the instruction that it contains for us, both by principle and precept. Pray now as we come to the table to receive communion, that you would prepare our hearts. Help us to prepare them, O Lord. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come to a a special time, the worship service, as we see already, we've seen God's work of grace in the lives of four ordinary men. But I think all of us around who have tasted and seen that God is good, we can testify that God has been working in our lives as well. What made that possible? Well, I'm going to ask you, if you have your Bibles, to turn to 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 to 26. You don't have a Bible with you. You can turn to the Pew Bible in front of you to page 1149. I'll read this passage, one that is familiar, written by Paul to the church in Corinth there. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim 
the Lord's death until he comes. You know, last week on Good Friday, we reflected upon God's perfect love towards us, demonstrated through the suffering of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we celebrated by partaking together here communion, reflecting upon his perfect substitution, Christ's death in exchange for mine and yours. We then celebrated together Christ's victory over sin and death by being raised from the dead, and Easter being that glorious celebration last Sunday of his resurrection. He is risen. He is what? Risen indeed. Well, this morning, I would like to direct our attention to the present and the future. We just read in verse 26 that for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What is proclamation? What, do you, what does he mean by proclaim? Pro- proclamation means it is declaring, it is teaching, it is making known the facts of the gospel publicly. And that is one of the reasons why churches have continued this ceremony over the years. And so why is proclamation important? It is our individual and corporate declaration and affirmation that we believe these very truths, that God sent forth his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the purpose of what? Of paying the penalty of our sin by satisfying God's judgment and wrath through his Son's death, and by being raised from the dead in order to conquer death. Our proclamation, as we partake together, till he comes, is our public testimony. This is what we're doing corporately. It's our public testimony of trusting this past event to be true and to express our desire to follow Christ by faith in the promise and the promises of the future. We are not, we are not ashamed to publicly proclaim this truth. Jesus tells the crowd back in Mark chapter 8, he tells the crowd and his disciples that for whoever is ashamed of me, And of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. You see, when we partake together, we are not ashamed to identify with what Christ has done. And our proclamation is another way to remind us to keep perspective. We're alive because what Christ has done. But we live on because we believe Christ will one day return as king and to take us to our eternal home. In other words, our celebration together is not just looking back at the most significant event in history, but we're looking ahead. We're looking forward in anticipation to the greatest event that will come very soon. And so we are looking forward to Christ coming to establish his kingdom here on earth. I'm reminded in Hebrews chapter 9, we're familiar with the passage in verse 27, that just it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. But the next verse there in verse 28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, 
but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's what we do when we, when we celebrate together. We are eagerly waiting for his return. We proclaim together corporately as we partake together, remembering what he has done in the past, looking forward to his return. I'm thinking of that passage in Titus of waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as we partake together, not only are we looking back and looking forward, but we also at this time are looking within, in the present. And I say that because there in 1 Corinthians 11, there's one important consideration. And I say that because familiarity, you know, we do this once a month, the first Sunday of the month. Sometimes familiarity can breed contempt. And that practice can be easily abused both personally and corporately. But the Apostle Paul notes here in verse 27 there that therefore whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and of the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. You know, if you don't believe this proclamation that we're declaring here, if you don't believe that proclamation to be true, or you don't understand the gospel of what, why did God send his son, if you don't understand that message, I would just ask that you would refrain at this time. Because this is, for us who do believe, it is our public testimony to say, yes, we identify. We believe this is true, and we believe it's true until he returns and takes us. But there may be some of you, and I don't want you to be ashamed or feel pressure to take something. Just refrain, and perhaps another time. Or if you need explanation, talk to one of the elders, and we'd be happy to open the scriptures to you. But at this time, just join me as I lead us in a word of prayer and giving thanks. Our gracious Father, we, we come to you now and we want to express our gratitude for providing this opportunity, this simple demonstration of the bread and the cup to symbolize and to help us to recall what you have done through sending of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to have his body broken, his blood spilled on our behalf. For the only contribution we have made is the sin that required his death on the cross. But we thank you as we have sung and we've been reminded through the scriptures that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we want to praise you for that very gift of sending your son to to make that even possible. And we celebrate together corporately We thank you for this time together, and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.